Let me catch you up on where we're at in our series, okay? We're going through a series we're calling Family Dynamics, and uh, one of the things that you hear a lot around here is that the church is not just an event, it's not just a show, it's not even just a community, it's actually something more than that. It's a family. Um, you say, well, why, why that? Why is it a family? Well, it's because what Jesus called it. In fact, uh, there's a story in the Bible where Jesus uh, is teaching, teaching some people in a house, and his biological mother and his brother, whom he loved very much, they come up to the door. The house is so packed out that they can't get through, so they send a messenger that squeezes his way through. Everybody's got a friend like that, right? That if they need to get through a crowd, they can get through. So they send that guy in, and, and they get to Jesus. He says, Jesus, your mother and your brother are here. He turns and he looks at the guy. He said, my mother and brother? And then he points to his disciples. He says, there's my mother and there's my brother. He said, whoever does the will of God, they are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't love his family. It's just that he's pointing to a higher reality, which is the family of God. All those who call upon Jesus Christ for salvation are a part of the spiritual family of God. And that's actually higher than, it's a higher reality than the biological family. Now in our society, of course, the biological family does usually take precedent. Now this is good news, this idea of a spiritual family. This is good news if you don't like your biological family. Not all of us had great biological families, so it's good news that actually the biological family is not the only family that we ever get. We can have a new family in Christ. It's bad news if you've got a great family and you've been treating the church like a second-class citizen, that you have not been treating your brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way that you treat your biological family. This is tough news because it's a wake-up call that you need to start looking to your left and to your right and saying, this is my brother, this is my sister. And so these dynamics that are at work in any good family, we've been talking about them, we've said good families help each other make big life decisions. A great family comes alongside of you and helps you do that. Then we looked and we said good families are there during life's major transitions. They're the ones that are always there, no matter what you're transitioning from or to. Good families are united as one. Even though there's lots of different characters, different personalities, different preferences, within a family, good families are united together, usually because they have a shared mission or purpose. We also say good families seek to be intentional about helping each other grow in maturity. It's not enough to just leave your baby brother or your baby sister as a baby. You need to help them to grow and become mature. And then we said good families love each other enough to discipline one another, to step in and get in the way so that you don't lead or allow your brother or sister to walk down a path of destruction, either destruction for themselves or destruction for the family. Talked about that last week. And today we're going to look about, uh, at how good families... Good families always reinvest their life experiences back into the family, back into their brothers and sisters. They reinvest it so that 
Their siblings can be blessed. So if you'd pray with me, we'll just pray that God would teach us how to share and invest our experience as well. Father, we thank you for this chance to come together as a family and to study your word. Uh, We thank you that you haven't left us alone, that you've given us communication about what we are to be and and what we are to seek for one another. We pray tonight that our ears would be tuned in to hear what is from you. I pray that anything that's from my own mind or my own heart that has not been uh, placed there by you, that that would pass right through one ear and out the other. But anything that is from you that is true and right, that that would stick and continue to work on us this week as we go into our fellowship groups, as we speak with one another one-on-one, grab coffee, that we would wrestle with these questions of how to share our experience with the family of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things and so much more. Amen. So we did this in our fellowship group uh, this last week, uh, kind of in anticipation for this. I was just thinking about how we can learn so much in a 24-hour day, right? And uh, did you know that I'm 12,368 days old? You're like, whoa. (laughs) That's right. Oil of Olay. My skin is looking good. But I'm I'm over 12,000 days old. I got 12,000 plus days of life experience. That's a lot of experience, right? And uh, there's probably some of you in the room that I've got at least 4,000 days more experience than you do which means that I've got something to offer you, right? There's probably something that's happened in those 4,000 extra days that you've never experienced, but that you're going to experience, right? That being said, even if there's, even if you're in the 7,000 club, even if you've only been alive for 7,000 days, I bet you've got some real experience that you could share with me. Some things that I have yet to go, to go through, that I will go through, that by you sharing that with me and investing that experience in me, I could learn, I could grow, and I could be more prepared when it comes into my life. I dusted off my accounting skills. For those of you that don't know, I used to be a CPA. Uh, that's, that's holler-worthy, I think. <laughs> I mean, how many CPAs do you know, right? Okay. So dusted off, I did a little estimation. I estimate that there's about 1,272,000 days of experience in our church. That's a lot of experience. <laughs> so healthy families function in this way, right? They share their experience. So let me, let me show you how this works in the biological settings, right? So usually there's a firstborn. Anybody firstborn in the room? Raise your hand if you're firstborn. I am so sorry. Because usually the firstborn has to uh, first try things, mess it up, and then they pass that experience on to their younger siblings. The secondborn. I was the secondborn. I love secondborns. Any secondborns in the room? Yeah, let's grab coffee. All right. Talk about it. So I get all this experience from my older sibling, and now I'm experiencing similar things, unique things, and then I'm passing it down to... The third born in the family, right? Which, uh, we got three kids in my family, so that'd be my younger sister, Kaylee. Now, some of you come from huge families. So you could do this over and over again where you're passing it down, passing it down. And theoretically, 
the youngest sibling should be set up for the most uncommon type of success because they do not have to relive all the good and bad experiences of their older siblings because it's been passed down. Now, any of you youngest in your family, right, that doesn't always work, right? (laughs) And part of the reason it doesn't always work and you guys end up not having much success at all is because your older siblings didn't do their job. So if your parents get mad at you and say, why haven't you made anything of your life? Just tell them it's my older sister and brother's fault. Talk to them. They were supposed to set me up for success. That's how a good family works. We had this uh, family of four brothers that I played basketball with growing up. I played with two of the brothers. And they were all pretty good at basketball. But the youngest one ended up being the best basketball player. Why is that? Well, because he was learning from his oldest brother, watching him play. Learning from his Second oldest brother, watching him play. Learning from the brother right above him. Watching and learning. All this information, all this experience was passed down to him. And that's the way it should work. He excelled in a way that his other brothers didn't. Other parts of life, they get this paradigm. Think of science, right? Every scientist doesn't come along and reinvent the wheel, literally. They don't have to figure out everything that's already been figured out. They take what's been learned and then they add on top of it, right? I mean, technology is probably the best example of this in our day. Technology continues to progress at such a rapid pace because we take what somebody else has done and we just make it better. We build on top of it. Unfortunately, this doesn't always happen in the family, biological or spiritual. Why is that? I don't know exactly I've got examples in my own family of doing this well and not doing this well. My older sister, Kim, uh, she had a lot of good and bad experiences, and she shared some with me. When I went into high school, she was a senior. There were some serious perks to having your older sister be a senior when you're a freshman, one of which is she was friends with all the cheerleaders. And so I would walk down the hall and everybody would know who I was. They'd be like, oh, hey, Dave, you know, and they'd come, they'd give me hugs and things, and all my friends were like, wow, <laughs> this kid is something else. No big deal, right? No big deal. She'd also tell me, she said, whatever you do, don't take Mr. Taft for calculus. Take this other guy. But definitely take Mr. Michelson for world history. That's an easy A. And I did. Mr. Michelson... I took as many classes as I could from him, and I got lots of A's because of it, not because I was any good at that, but I learned from her experience. But there's also times where, man, I wish she had taught me and shared some of her experiences and other facets of life. I wish both that she had been more forthright, and I wish I had sought out her experience more. So good families do this. They share so that other family members can be blessed, can avoid danger, can get a head start as they encounter the same things in life. This is the dynamics of a good family. So if you've got your Bible, you can pull it out, or you'll see in your bulletin, I've got all the scripture we'll be looking at today. That's probably the easiest way because we'll be jumping around, or you can look it up on your phone. But turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy literally means the second law written by a guy named Moses uh, after he had taken the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt 
and they're in the wilderness awaiting for God to bring them into the promised land, and he writes the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy being one of them. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we're going to look at this phenomenon that we see all the time throughout the Bible, and it's the dynamic or the art of remembrance. It's a huge part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a child of God, is remembering what God has done, what He's brought you through, good and bad. And remembering is never just for your own benefit. When you read the Bible, it's like this idea of remembering aloud. And as we remember aloud, we testify about our experience, including and specifically the goodness and faithfulness and power of God through any circumstance. So as we're remembering aloud, this is absolutely a communal activity. When you see it in Scripture, it is never me sitting by myself remembering alone. Now that happens, of course, but, it, but, but what the Bible would tell you is always bring that remembering to your community for their blessing and for God's glory. So Deuteronomy 4.9 says this. Read it with me. Only take care and keep your soul diligently. This is a matter of the soul. And we must take care. We must be incredibly careful. Lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. The eyes have seen and it's seeped into the heart And if we do not remember, if we forget those things, it is not good. So he says this, Make them known to your children and to your children's children. See this idea of remembering aloud? It's a communal activity. As we remember the experiences that God has brought into our view and as they've seeped into our heart, but we must continually talk about them or else they will fade away. Uh, You can flip over if you want to Deuteronomy 6.10 or look in your bulletin. He says a very similar thing. It says this, Deuteronomy 6.10, The Lord your God will soon bring you into the land He swore to give to you when He made a vow to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a land with large, prosperous cities that you did not build and houses that are richly stocked with goods that you did not produce. You will draw water from cisterns that you did not dig and you will eat from vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. When you have eaten your fill in this land, be careful not to forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Basically, what's happened here is The people of Israel were in slavery and God promised that he would bring them out and that he would take them into the promised land and they just take over that land and all the good that had already happened there. This was the Lord's blessing in their life. He says, don't forget. Remember where you came from. Remember the hard days of slavery. Talk about those with your kids. When the good things come your way, don't just stuff the bad things away because they're painful. Remember the hardships. Remember what slavery felt like. Talk about that. Talk about it in community. And then talk about how God rescued you from that situation. 
And the key to not forgetting is to never stop sharing. Never stop sharing what God did, what he's doing. Never stop sharing of the promises and how he's always kept his promise. And as you reinvest these experiences generation after generation, the good, the bad, the hard, and the blessed, your experiences with God begin to be fruit in the lives, not just of yourself, but of your brothers and sisters around you. Luke 8, this is in your bulletin as well. Luke 8, 38. Uh, Jesus has just healed a man who was possessed by a demon. And here's what happens next. But the man from whom the demon had gone out was begging Jesus that he might accompany Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying... Instead, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city the great things that Jesus had done for him. This is an interesting story, right? Jesus is basically, I believe, saying, your experience is not just for you. Your experience is for your entire community. You get to be the one that experienced this, But it's not for you alone. You need to go share it with the rest of your community. And the reason that he must do that is so that they too might hear and know the mighty works of Jesus and recognize him as their Messiah, their Savior, through the experience of this one man who was cured. Now this is crazy, right? Because basically, the story goes, the man experiences Jesus His life is changed by him, and all he wants to do is follow Jesus. All he wants to do is accompany him for the rest of his days, learning from him, experiencing more of Jesus. And we always think, right, surely this is what Jesus wants us to do, to follow him. And he tells this man, you can't follow me, because you need to go back and share your experience. That's crazy, right? Here's what I think this tells us. Jesus' perspective is this. The man sharing his experience with others is more important than being with Jesus and continually learning about his kingdom. Ever heard that preached? It's more important that you share the experience you've already had even than learning more and accumulating more experiences for yourself. Now, I do believe God wants us to learn and to grow and to understand him and his kingdom better, but not at the expense of sharing our experience. So if you're just piling up experience after experience and you're not sharing any of those with your brothers and sisters, those outside the community of faith, I think Jesus would say, you can't follow me right now. You need to go share what I've already done. There comes a time in all of our lives when we have to turn down learning about Jesus to share about him. If we all do this, if we all invest our experience only in ourselves, then we failed to be true disciples of Jesus. We failed to be disciples if we only invest or keep our experiences for ourselves. Why do I say this? Think about how Jesus made his first disciples, the 12 disciples. He went to them, he found them, And he said, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. 
And his teaching style was steeped in experience. Watch the way I do this. Watch the way I pray. Watch the way I resist the devil over 40 days. Watch the way I read the scriptures. Watch the way I deal with the religious elite. Watch the way I deal with the government authorities. So his teaching style, yes, he was teaching them about the kingdom, but he was also showing them They were experiencing what life lived to the full as a human being meant. Now, it's so important here because we forget. We say, Jesus, yes, he's the son of God, but he was also fully human. So the fully human life that Jesus lived showed his disciples how God always intended the human life to be lived. So he told them, but he showed them. And we read this in John 17, 4, which is fascinating. This is before Jesus goes to the cross. This is before the resurrection. And Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says this, I have glorified you on the, on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I've accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. But he'd yet to go to the cross. So what has he accomplished? What work has he finished? We all know that Jesus came to go to the cross for our sin, but he had other work that he came to do. What was that work? It was to make disciples, showing them how to live, teaching them through experience how to live the life that God had designed. And that's what he's talking about in John 17. That's the work he has accomplished making disciples, sharing his experience of how to live for God. And then in Matthew 28, we have the Great Commission. So Jesus dies, resurrected, and then as he's going to ascend to heaven, he gives one last command to his disciples. He says this, Go, make your own disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you to do. And how were they to do that? How were they to go about making more disciples? Sharing their experiences that they had with Jesus. Sharing their experiences. And that's exactly what they did. Anyone that would listen, they would share their experience. This is what it was like living with Jesus, walking with Jesus, listening to him teach, watching him perform miracles. And they shared it all. They shared the good, they shared the bad, and they even shared the really embarrassing experiences that they had. Peter, after Christ was arrested, denied that he knew Jesus three times. Three times he said, I don't know that guy. You know what Peter did when he was making disciples? He shared that experience. He didn't hold anything back. He shared all of it. Because they knew it was for the good of their brothers and sisters. So this is how disciples of Jesus make other disciples of Jesus. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And this is how we must, too, make disciples. Sharing our experience. Not just teaching sound doctrine and truth about God, though that's very important. Not just teaching the way to salvation, but sharing and reinvesting every experience we have in this life with our brothers and sisters. That's how the family works. So I had a serious epiphany this week. Like, really serious. In a good way. Uh, And my epiphany this week 
was really about how to reinvest negative experiences, even tragic experiences. And I'd always read this verse. I don't know if you've heard this verse before. It's, again, printed in your bulletin. It's Romans 8.28, and it says this. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. I'll read it one more time. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And basically, this is good news, (laughs) that God is working for the good of those who love him. But whenever I read this passage, I always read it in one way. Who do you think those who love him are? Do you think that's a plural or a singular? That's right. Who wants credit for that? That's a, uh, that's a plural. All of those who love him. So is, G- is God saying that he works all things for my good? For my good because I love him? Or is he saying for the good of any or all Christians? This is the epiphany that I had. I'd always read this verse from a very self-centered perspective. I had always read it as, God will work all things that happen to me, all my good and my bad experiences. He'll work all those things for my good somehow because I love him. Now is that what he's promising here? My experiences will turn into my good. I don't think that's what he's saying. Now, oftentimes this is true, that God will take an experience of mine as negative or as tragic as it might be, and he will use it for my good. But I don't think he actually always does, one for one, take my bad experience and turn it around for my good. But his promises can still be true here. Because he can take my experience, as tragic or as negative as it might be, and he might use it for the good of another brother or sister in the faith. Maybe this is what God is saying here. That he can take any experience and use it for one of his children's good. You see, I get so tunnel vision. My perspective is so small that I get angry at God if I can't see how my negative experience impacts me for good. Does anybody else struggle with this? But God is so much greater than I. He is infinite and I am finite. He created me and I can barely make a ham sandwich. And he is making connections and he is is touching things that I cannot see because I am too small. Maybe he's taking my bad experience and blessing somebody else with it. And I think one of the ways that this often happens is when I reinvest my experience in a fellow brother or sister by sharing with them, bringing them into my story, bearing my experience that they might learn from it, grow from it, be ahead of the game when they experience it. Practical lessons that I've learned, godly wisdom that I've discovered, spiritual and biblical understanding that I've gained through an experience, warnings and redirection that they might avoid the same end. These are the types of ways that God can use a negative experience to bring about good in the lives of others who love him. It's the epiphany that I had this week, and it blew my mind. 
but I can only participate in this great promise if I choose to participate. If I choose to open my life up to others. Let me give you the great example in my life. Most of you know my story. Nine years ago, my older sister Kim was killed in a bicycling accident. And since that day, till this day, I've held on to this promise that God could turn anything into good. Any tragedy can be turned to good. And he definitely has. He definitely has done that. But as I sort of take stock of all that he's done through that experience, I have to admit that from the ashes, he's brought about not primarily my own good, though I've definitely experienced that, but if we just sort of add it up, he's brought a ton of good into other people's lives as well. And I always have to ask myself this question, am I okay with that? Am I okay if I got no good out of that, but others got much good? Luckily, I can honestly answer yes to that question today. But if I had chosen to hold on to that tragic experience, if I, if I had sort of turned inward and all the lessons that I'd learned about God's grace and his mercy, his goodness and, and renewed perspective, then I would have grown myself, and I did, but no one else would have grown if I had just held on to that and kept that to myself. None of my spiritual brothers or sisters would have benefited from what God was doing through this tragedy. And believe it or not, and you're not going to probably believe this, before Kim died, I was intensely private about my faith. I was a Christian, but I never talked about it. I never shared what God was doing or teaching me in my own life. That was between me and him. I never shared it. And from the day, March 17th, 2007, since that day on, every day has been God inviting me to share my experiences with him. And I think it's only by the grace of God, only by the power of the Spirit that I choose to do that. Because it's still hard. It's still hard for me to share that experience. Every time I tell my story, it's agonizing because it brings back to mind the feelings that I had the day I got the phone call that she was dead. That is not easy for me to do. And so I must choose again and again not to keep that to myself, but to share it. It's not easy, even to this day. And I shared for the first time at her memorial service, and God's continued to ask me to share my experience. Enemies, the enemies of God don't want me to, and they give me all sorts of great reasons to keep it to myself. But God is at work, he's fighting back, and he's giving me even better reasons to keep sharing. It's always worth the pain. It's always worth the pain to share of what God is doing in your life. If I hadn't chosen to share my experience, if I'd kept it to myself, I wouldn't be married to my wife, Allie. I met her promoting the second Consider concert, which was sharing my experience. I would not have my son, Grayson. And if I need to explain to you how those are connected, let's grab coffee. (laughs) Wife, Grayson, okay. Um, If I had not shared my experience, I would not be standing right here. This church would not exist. I would not know any of you. So I'm glad that I share. And I'm going to keep sharing. Now, 
Let's get theological. Any songs pop into your head when I say that? <laughs> Let's get theological. Why is this the way of God? Why do families work this way? I want to share about the principle of resurrection. How many times have you prayed? I've prayed this so many times. God, just take me back to the way things used to be. You ever prayed that? Take me back to the way things used to be. But when we rightly understand the Word of God, when we rightly understand what He's saying to us, when we rightly understand His plan for this world and our lives, what we realize is that God is not in the business of putting things back exactly the way they were. You say, wait, 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 wait. I thought that's what resurrection was about. I thought that's what we were hoping for as Christians. I thought that's what the faith of a man and woman in Christ is all about, that God will put things back exactly as they once were. Jesus died, and he was brought back to life just as, he was, just as if he had never died. That's the gospel, right? Or, we too hope in the resurrection that we will be brought back to life just as if we had never died. Is that the gospel? Yes and no. Yes, it's true that Jesus died and he was brought back to life, but not just as if he had never died. And we too will be brought back to life, but not just as if we had never died. That's not actually resurrection. Not at least how the Bible talks about it. Resurrection is not God's way of erasing a bad experience like death. In fact, resurrection is more about taking all the bad and making something new and better. Have you guys seen that? There's a new Hyundai commercial. Maybe I just know about it because I drive a Hyundai. Great automobiles. Check them out. Um, they've got this new commercial. They say, not just new, but new and better, right? Because we live in this world where Everything's about new, new, new this. But lots of times the new things aren't any better. God is not in the business of just bringing about new things, but better things. That's what the resurrection is about. The world we live in is literally different because of the tragic experience of the cross. Before his death, there was no before Jesus' death, there was no way of forgiveness. There was no real way at restored relationship with God. It could not actually happen. It was just a dream. But because of his death and the subsequent resurrection, we can actually have real forgiveness. It's not a dream anymore. Real forgiveness. Real restored relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So Jesus is not just a good story, not just an idealized version of love and sacrifice. Jesus walked on this earth in a real place 2,000 years ago. He visited real towns and villages. He died on a literal, physical, wooden cross just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And he literally rose from the dead three days later. And when that happened, there was literally... A change in the fabric of the universe. And it started in the spiritual realm and it will work its way into the physical. 
That's so important to, to remember that Jesus was not just brought back to life just as if he had never died. That's not the gospel. It's that he actually died and what happened on the cross changed everything because experience changes everything. That's why it's so important not to hide the experience because it's the experience that changes everything. Let me give you another illustration of this in God's plan. You've heard about the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of the Bible. The first two chapters about God created everything and He created it perfectly. Chapter 3, it goes terribly wrong because people rebel against God. They say, we want to be our own gods, make our own decisions, do what we want to do. And so you're thinking, well, if God is going to restore everything, right? What we'd see at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, the very end of the Bible, right here, okay? We will see him putting everything back just as it was in the garden. And often, sometimes we talk about it this way. I know I'm guilty of it. Sometimes I talk about, oh, how things were in the garden. But when you actually read the end of this book, the end of God's plan, His promise for the future, it's not a garden that you see, it's a city. It's a new, better, holy city where we live with God. And so this is how God works. This is the concept of resurrection. Nothing in the story of God is ever wasted and never scrapped. Human culture is not a waste and, it, and therefore erased. Community is not a waste and therefore erased. History is not a waste and therefore erased. Instead, God is a God of redemption, making new and better things out of imperfect things. This is transformation. This is what happens in God's plan for this world and his plan for our life. Now, let me drop back down to the, from the 100,000 foot view to you and me in our own lives. Our experiences actually change us. We are not the same today as we were yesterday because we've been changed by our experiences, good, bad, and otherwise. And this is not an accident because God is involved in transformation, not just leaving us as we are or taking us back to some past version of ourselves. So if we want to be in line with God's plan and participate in His plan, we have to seek to reinvest every experience for God's story of transformation. This is what it means to be people of the Gospel. When we reinvest every experience for the glory of God and the good of each other. Do you want to be people of resurrection? Or people of rewind. Ah, if we could just go back to the way things were. Let's move forward to the new future that God has for us. So go back with me uh, real quick to my sister's story. So this experience obviously profoundly changed me in the course of my life. Changed my family. And I think it changed us for the better. But so many times in my grief... I've asked God, could we just go back to the way it was before she died? Just bring her back. Can we just hit reset? Can we do it all over again? And every time this happens, every time I have this thought, 
God is faithful to bring to mind all the things that have happened because of that experience. He brings them to mind how profoundly changed I am, the change that others have experienced, the new relationships that have started, my wife, my son, the new friends that I've gained through this entire process, this church, all of you. And then it hits me. And I stop. And I realize these are both good things. Rewinding and having Kim back would be a great thing. All of you are a great thing. Most of the time. 60% of the time. Most of the time. Both good things. So how do I choose? What, what would I rather have? And then it, then it hits me. This, this is another epiphany. I don't have to choose. God promises me both. God has promised me both. I will have my sister back one day. And I will have all of you in my life for eternity. Because of Jesus. Because we know him. Because we worship him as Lord. Both. He promises me and he will give me both. And my heart swells with joy. As I think about this. And how true it is that I don't have to choose. And the question changes. Not which would I rather have. But the question changes to, will I be faithful? Willing to wait on those promises to be fulfilled. Willing to trust God that He will give all the desire of my heart to have both. Or will I be resentful? Will I choose to lift up my bad experiences and almost place them as an idol in my life? that I worship, that fuels my anger towards God. And I have that choice every day. What will I do this day? Lots of good epiphanies this week. It's been a good week. Now let me tell you how this will actually work in reality. Because it's one thing to sort of talk about it. Let me tell you how this will work. First, this is the only way it works. You must mine M-I-N-E. Is there other way to spell mine? You must mine like I'm digging for coal. You must mine your experiences for wisdom. Pray through your experiences. God, help me to learn from this what you want me to learn. You must read your experiences through the lens of Scripture. As you're reading the Word of God, you will see things that remind you of what you're going through. Read your way through experiences. Ask others to help you see your experience in the proper lens. Ask each other tough questions. What do you think God wants you to learn from this? Tell me what you've learned through this. Uh, Four, you need to do this with both good and bad experiences. Some of us are better at mining our bad experiences and we're terrible at mining our good experiences. Some of us are mining our good, but we're putting the bad aside. We must mine both good and bad. And always ask yourself these three questions of every experience because I think God wants you to get something out of each of these. What does this experience teach me about God and the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does this experience teach me about myself and who God has made me to be? And what does this experience teach me about the mission of God 
and the world around me. I think every experience is, is teaching us, telling us something about that if we would mine our experiences. So once we've mined our experiences, then we need to be willing to share them with family members, brothers and sisters in Christ. As a Christian, you don't own your experience. God does. This is what it means for Christ to be Lord of all. He even owns your experience so you must surrender it to him and use it how he wants you to use it. Share your story. Share your wisdom. Share your experience with your brothers and sisters and the family of God. Third, you must seek out the experience of others. So it's one thing to be willing to share your own experiences, but you need to go find somebody else and you need to seek them out and say, I heard through the grapevine that you might have gone through something like this. Tell me about it. Help me through this. You need to seek out others. There's somebody out there, even in this size community, that has gone through something similar than you. The other thing, you need to connect brothers and sisters to other brothers and sisters. You say, oh my gosh, you're going through this? I just talked to so-and-so. They're also going through this. You guys should meet up. If you know anybody who has lost a sibling, connect them to me because I believe it's a great joy in life to share that experience with somebody. So you connect them to me. You see how this works? And then finally, you must give all the glory to God. When God uses your experience, particularly when he uses a terrible experience in your life, but he uses it to bless a sibling. Praise his name. Not your own. Okay? Don't praise yourself. You praise God that he used your experience for someone else's good. Declare that God answers promises, that he fulfills everything that he said, that he can bring good out of everything. Remember that. That all things work for the good of those who love God. Remember that when you share your stories, your experiences, and it blesses somebody. Say, Romans 8.28, it's true. God can use anything for the good of those who love him. Now finally, let me say this. I was talking to a wise friend this week. Third epiphany of the week. Talking to a wise friend. And she said to me, do you know why... I, I, she said, I realized why I should go to my fellowship group or why I should go to church. I forget how she said it, but I'm going to use it in the context of fellowship group. Why, why should you go to fellowship group? She said, I used to always think it was for my good, for my blessing. That's the reason that I should be consistent and committed to gathering with the people of God. But then she said, but then I realized that's not the main reason to show up. The main reason to show up is that there's somebody else in that group that God wants to use my experience to bless them. So if I don't show up, I'm robbing them of God's blessing. And I said, Phew. I mean, I, don't, I didn't do that, but that's what happened. That's why we show up. Not for ourselves, that's not the gospel but because God wants to use us to bless someone else. And if we don't show up, we're robbing them of our experience that might benefit them. 
She said this to me. I always want God to show up for me, but then I realized I should probably start showing up for him, which means showing up for others. And I said, preach. I said, you come up here. And she said, not this week. I said, next week. Okay. In this room, we've got people with a lot of experiences. Some of you, this is actually why I don't preach this message. Some of you, God has invested $160,000 of some of the finest Christian education in the country. He's invested it in you. You think he did that because he just really loves you and he just really wants you to have a lot of good Christian friends that you met at school? I don't think so. I think he wants you to go reinvest that experience in somebody who did not have that opportunity. Maybe you had a great situation in college where you lived with all these college girls or guys and you had this amazing family feeling. Did he invest that in you because he wants you to just live off of that fruit for the rest of your life? No. He wants you to reinvest it in somebody who's never had that experience because now you know what it's like. And this gets me so fired up when I see people taking the gifts God's given them and holding on to them instead of reinvesting them in somebody else. The story of Christianity is people sharing and reinvesting their experiences through the generations Blessing others by sharing of what God's doing in their life. People like Corey Ten Boom, who was in a Nazi concentration camp in World War II. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. People like C.S. Lewis, who, who thought, it's not enough for me to just have this relationship with God. I have to share it with others. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And the list goes on and on and on. And disciples have been made because people have shared their experience. So you have to decide. Will you join with the saints throughout the ages and reinvest your experience with others right here at Sedaris? Will you do this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our experiences are not all the same. We thank you that you have blessed us with literally over a million days of experience in this family, that there's so much that you've brought, brought us through, that together we have this wealth of knowledge about you and the way you work and about your grace and your love that you never give up on us. So much we know about you that we would just share that with each other, that we would reinvest our experience with one another, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, not keeping it for ourselves but looking to find ways to bring the good into the lives of others who love you. Give us the courage to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.